Hey, I'm Amy Choi. And I'm Rebecca Lair, and we are the Mashup Americans. We are your guide to hyphen America, and we are also the people who know the deep childhood suffering of having parents who will just not play along with how everyone else is doing things. That's so true, but like, can you give me an example? <laughs> there are so many. I just took my kid to the doctor, obviously, yet again last week because this is what my life is. But I was just thinking about how, like, when I was little, all I wanted to do was to, like, go to go to, like, a real doctor that wasn't just, like, my parents' friend who came with them from Korea. Because, like, every doctor and dentist appointment I had was, like, it was definitely, like, either their friend or their friend's kid. And we went on, like, an off hour. <laughs> and it was, like, maybe just a favor. Not that it was illegal, but also wasn't totally on the books. And I was, like, no, I want a real, like, a doctor who, like, you, is not somebody you knew in high school <laughs> in Korea. Well, they prob- they might have been a real doctor. You just wanted to, like, make a choice about your doctors and medical care. He, yeah. Well, I mean, like, <laughs> no, I just... I, we only saw a great pediatrician, but my dad's cousin, Dr. Pivko, obviously, great physician, but I completely understand this. I relate to this content. Um, and I think <laughs> our guest today, Aline Brosh McKenna, has a very funny story about a very similar thing. Like the prototypical story is that my mother hates Halloween. French people don't understand Halloween. She thinks candy is that kind of candy is disgusting. And so on Halloween, my mother decided one year to, and this is a true story, to slice up red and green peppers and put them in a Ziploc bag. No. And hand them out. Uh, My version actually, though, is just that my mom, when I was in plays, my mom would cut flowers from our yard and you know wrap them in like foil at the bottom a beautiful I mean she's a landscape architect so like we had beautiful flowers she would wrap and then bring them to the play and I was like can't you just go to the florist at the <laughs> da- by wherever that it sells the gross roses in a with baby's breath in a plastic that wrap. Are like dyed blue. Dyed blue. Yeah, like in plastic wrap. Like that's what all the other kids have. And here you're bringing me some freaking lavender that you picked in our yard. And now I'm like, that's so dreamy. But really at the time it was, I was like, just do the thing like the other people do the thing. I just, all we wanted as children was to like have to make appointments like white people and have candy and shitty flowers. I know. How hard is the that? The pain. Anyway, we'll find out more about Aline after a quick break. Hey, did you know that we have a newsletter which is a roundup of all the mashy stories we see in the world every week? Pop culture, politics, immigration, food, it's all in there delightfully curated for you by us. Fubu for us by us. Get it now at mashupamericans.com/newsletter. Okay, so we have a legit Hollywood person on the show today. Aline Brosh McKenna has given us so much good film and television over the last 25 years. She's a showrunner, a director, an actor, but she's probably most famous for being a writer. She wrote 27 Dresses, I Don't Know How She Does It, and maybe a little movie you know called The Devil Wears Prada. Ooh, I love that movie. For the last four years, she's been at the helm of undoubtedly the most Jewish show on TV and a very mashy one. Crazy Ex-Girlfriend. 
Give me a song about bacterial vaginosis in the style of the musical <laughs> Cat, and I am sold. S-O-L-D, sold. Or one about giving good parent, being, you know, being the kind of person other people's parents love. That's me. <laughs> I get good parents. She gives good parents. I get good parents. She gives real good parents. I get good parents. She gives good parents to parents like me. You know, my favorite is her song about antidepressants. I mean, why? That, don't be such a basic everyone, bitch about your antidepressants. Everyone should take them. Yeah. <laughs> everyone should take them. <laughs> um, along with her co-creator, Rachel Bloom, Aline has managed to make smart, funny, witty show that is Super mashy. Super mashy. And she comes by it honestly. Aline moved to America when she was less than one year old from France and is a mashup of Sephardic and Ashkenazi Jewish heritage. She grew up in a very white suburb of New Jersey in the 70s. And as she tells it, she and her family really stood out. I was very um, hairy. I continued to be hairy, but Mm -hmm. I was really hairy little girl, you know, got like heavy arm and leg hair really young and then a lot of eyebrows. Mm -hmm. This is an important mashup theme. Yes. We have a whole article dedicated on our website to hair. Yeah. So Mm -hmm. it's a it, it was a whole thing and it really marked me as different and kids, you know, felt very open about commenting on it. And also, you know, it's interesting. I have a big nose, but I don't have like a quote unquote stereotypical Jewish nose, hook nose. I hate to say that, but that's the stereotype. <laughs> and it wasn't, it's actually not until very recently that like I would start Googling Sephardic women or Moroccan women or North African women and see like, oh, it's that nose. And a lot of the things that I was shamed for as a child in terms of my appearance, I realized sort of later in my life were related to my ethnicity, mm-hmm. but I didn't identify it that way when I was a child. I just identified it as like, oh, people think I'm not conventionally pretty. Do you think that there's, I mean, because Sephardic Jews are from either Spain or Northern Africa, yeah. right? When you have met, you know, sort of, Anyone who is Moroccan or Northern African, have you been like, whoa, there's a thing here that we share that I didn't realize I thought was Jewish, but maybe is just actually. I I have that more often just with anyone who has immigrant parents, because that really is what defined my existence. Like, it just so happens that my mom is French and my dad's Israeli. But really what it was, they were older. My mother is a Holocaust survivor. My dad fought in the war in Israel. They had different life experiences from my parents' friends. They were my dad was 37 when I was born. My mom was 35. So we are living in the suburbs. Most people have like, you know, moms who are wearing like the right polyester stretch pants and they're in a <laughs> station wagon or smoking out the window with their press-on nails. And my mother is so different. She, my mother has is has her hair up in a bun and is wearing an Hermes scarf and and, and she is really clinging to her culture. French people don't, they don't, they're not eager to assimilate. They kind of don't care. They're really very French. My dad's Israeli. Israelis are a lot more like Americans and he assimilated very well and lost his accent pretty well. And like, there's a kind of a similarity in the like, you know, get your shit done and and suck it up kind of Mm -hmm. Israeli culture sort of blended well. Yeah. But 
my mother, like like the prototypical story is that my mother hates Halloween. French people don't understand Halloween. She <laughs> thinks candy is – that kind of candy is disgusting. And so on Halloween, my mother decided one year to – and this is a true story – to slice up red and green peppers and put them in a Ziploc bag. No. <laughs> and hand them out. <laughs> And when I saw what was going what down. What year was this? This is like 1975 or 6. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, and when I saw what was going down, <laughs> I, like, I, you know, I flung myself in front of the door weeping and said, I'll never recover from this. And why can't you get the, the big Snickers? Yeah. And I, a lot of my identity and a lot of my <laughs> personality really is formed by like, these, these folks don't actually understand what's the what. And it's funny because when I then moved on to other environments where there were lots of Jews, like show business, that sense of otherness really dissipated. But it, what, where it continues is that like a lot of Jews identify with the sort of Borscht Belt, you know, matzah ball. That, and my parents have n- literally no comprehension of that. They don't understand that kind of humor. They, they, all those kind of like typical Jewy things, Woody Allen, makes no sense to them. That is, uh, we talk about this all the time. It's actually, as I was coming here and Amy and I were talking, we were prepping. It's one of the things we wanted to talk about because Amy grew up in um, a suburb of Chicago that was actually primarily Jewish. But all Jews. All Jews. All oh, Glencoe. Uh-huh. Really right? Glencoe. Wished yeah. I was Jewish. Yeah. <laughs> but like had, but those Jews... <laughs> Like my experience as a first generation American Jew, like Salvadoran Jew, like it has nothing to. There's yeah, like no, there's other than like we did the same prayers. Right, like there were no the, Israelis where I grew up, but right. or even like uh, diaspora, like recent diaspora Jews. Like right. there were multiple generation American Jews. Like it's it's such a different experience of well, like, Jewish camp. We just did we not didn't do that. No. No. I didn't, and when I did go there, I didn't. You're like, why I, like, are people really doing didn't this? fit in. Yeah. And it's interesting because all of these things are like a whole thing. And then that intersects with your disposition. Like my brother was super good looking and popular and like managed to make and kind of look like John Travolta and like managed <laughs> to make that thing work for him. Wait, is he old, your older brother? Older. Okay. Yeah. And he was very dashing and good looking and athletic and popular. I mean, he had like pennies thrown at him in the locker room in ninth grade football. And like he, he, you know, we had a fair share of like garden variety anti-Semitism. But for a woman in the 70s, it's it's interesting because I, I felt so ex- – Cher was my guiding light, the existence of Cher. Who was like – I'm pretty <laughs> excited about – somebody. I was watching Watch What Happens Live or some yeah. Andy, Andy Cohen – and he somehow threw out that like Cher and Kim Kardashian should go to Armenia together. And I was like, I do hope that happens. Like when, I'm kind of excited about their Armenianness she, and the celebration of it. Yeah, I think what's interesting is that both Cher and Kim Kardashian have altered their appearance somewhat to be a little more conventionally to have more conventional features. Right. Like even just raising a hairline or, you know, totally. that sort of thing. But when Cher was was in this early 70s, when she had her show, she really that was the closest like face shape that I recognized in people Mm. who were famous as much as I wanted to be Jacqueline Smith wasn't quite going to work. And so I always looked for I, I just had a strong sense of that the traditional female narratives pertaining to like female identity and romance and stuff were not going to exactly pertain to me because I was perceived as like, you know, not the sort of garden variety female. And then the other factor was like, I was really, really smart and 
again, I would not describe the 70s as like looking for really super smart, hairy little girls. <laughs> so I flat chested. So it was like a very interesting, all those things which marked me as different, which now I feel very proud about. And obviously, you know, being smart as, you know, serves serves one well. There was heavy pressure to be ashamed of all the things right. which I think actually make me special and interesting and mm. cool. You know, what you're saying here is that, like, w- we think a lot about how as mashups, we're <laughs> we're like, we look at, I don't know, dare I say, regular white people, and we're like, it must be so, it's kind of sad that you don't have all of these traditions and stories to draw on. And, like, we feel so lucky to have, like, the the incredible tapestry that you have just made of your family's stories is you have so much to draw from, and also, like, of all of these Traditions and experiences, like, as you say, it can be incredibly alienating. And we also, like, we also carry all their trauma. Right? Yes, like, of we course. Also carry... On a genetic level. Exactly. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And, and, and the thing is, I do, you know, I enjoy white privilege. I look white. And so, I mean, I looked brown and hairy enough when I was a child that it was, like, an issue. But that's mainly because everybody else had, like, strawberry blonde hair and freckles where I was growing up. And then as soon as I got around Jews, I remember the first time someone told me I looked Jewish, I was like what do you mean? And then when I got around Jews, it was like, oh, brown haired girls with biggish noses. Like I, 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 I know fit you. in pretty well, but, but again, it would be a thing where like women like that would sort of approach me with like, we're similar, we're similar. And I was like, no, my mom did not go to Brandeis. She doesn't know anything about that. <laughs> no. I mean, my, I my mother, my, my refrigerator was filled with steamed leeks and halva. And uh, so God forbid anybody should come to my house and open the flipping fridge that was really where i felt like i occupied a weird space was like you people treat you as if you're white and so you are white and you enjoy all those white all those white privilege but i always felt a little um it's a little the situation is a little more nuanced than that as we say in the show it's a little more complicated than that and so sometimes i just don't get it and it's it's also it's differences that are invisible to most americans totally so you know, when did that turn for you? Like, when did it go from being like, ugh, the steamed leaks in the fridge to being like, fuck yeah, steamed leaks in the fridge? You to, know, like, I, I think, you know what? I've, I, as I'm sure this is a theme on your show, but I've have fought my hair my whole life. Oh, yeah. And so there was a phase when I was like 16 where I grew my hair super long and I let it be super curly and it was like really long and really big. And basically, what what happened was this tells you a lot about me. It started to work with boys. <laughs> and so I was like, so I started to cultivate this like artsy, ethnic-y, like it was like lace stockings and mini skirts and like big tuxedo jacks, with like wild hair and huge earrings. And it started to get me male attention. And as, as sad and shallow as that is to say, like I started to glimpse a little path of like, because it's very difficult to be feeling like, God, I'm not, I'm not Cheryl Teagues. How is this going to work? And I, that's when it really started. And then I could, I I mean, for me in college, it was the same thing. It's like getting there. All of my friends, best friends are also first gen, uh, you know, and whereas like going to the Hillel, I was like, <laughs> I don't relate to this, even though I went to private school in LA, which yeah. in a very Jewish environment, but like even like I was like, wait, that person blow dries their hair every day. Like I just right. didn't even till til senior year it became cool to have curly hair and they had curly hair for the first time. Right. And I had no idea. I was like, that's what somebody does every day. Like I just didn't 
and my mom like gets her nails done and does her hair, but like right. that didn't translate to like something we would do at home for me to do. It was like we had Costco underpants, you know, like there was nothing fan- like that was not the thing where we were spending energy. Right. And so right. Yeah, in, in college, I was just like, I don't relate to like I'm not going to join the Jewish Students Association. Right. Like that has nothing to I do didn't, with my yeah, experience. And I, so that is the interesting the interesting dichotomy in terms of my identity. But, you know, your identity, identity is so much your parents. And my father is a scientist and he's super smart and he was really into having a smart daughter. And he pushed, pushed, pushed and really always wanted me to be like super academic and was like, you're lazy. You need to do more. And like I had all those like typical immigrant wanting me to be a lawyer. And Harvard was like, yeah, I mean, it's it's, Harvard. it's, the, it's like one of the signature events of his life was me being at Harvard. And this is a great story. So, you know, in about there's like 1600 people in a class at Harvard. And I think maybe 400 of them graduate with honors. 150 of those are magna and then maybe 50 are summa. Right. So I graduated magna. It's pretty good. Top 10. I mean, top, I didn't have, probably, I, I was zero laudes. Probably, t- zero. probably top 10% of the class, <laughs> I'd say. pretty good. And that whole weekend, my father was so miserable and upset and crabby. And I said to my mother, what is going on? And she said, he's just so upset that you're not Suma. And yeah, so, and I think a lot of- I can relate to this content. Right. (laughs) And then on the other side, my mother is like, can walk into any thrift store and walk out with like a fantastic, you know, Ungaro outfit that she found for $16. That's a French thing. Yeah. That's also slightly a poor person thing because my mother was was very had no money. I, I very much see my heritage as like it's partly the lineage that they come from, but it's partly the f- forces that shape them very particularly. If that mm-hmm. makes you know, into totally. the people they are, and like the fact that my father's mother went to go and work in a bottle factory and and wash bottles so that he could go to a special school. That's like that's your, a, also a value right, system. Classic immigrant stuff. So they're just, you know, it's everybody's that. And what that really taught me is that everybody lives at the corner of blah and blah. How are you able to get that specificity into your work? I think that's something that we love when we when we uh, like absorb all of the stuff that you have created. Also, really, really warms my heart that the first episode of television that you had produced was for our girl Margaret, oh. an all-American girl. And it like so speaks to that ability, as you said, and the commonalities that are there when you actually just look at the immigrant experience. But I think one thing that um, that we often face, that Rebecca and I, that we're like, like working with certain producers or sometimes different distributors that are like, they want the explanatory comma. Right. Well, we, we, I think like in our show, Josh is Filipino because Vinny is Filipino. And there's a very strange thing on television where there's, there have been characters on television shows that are just Asian and they never tell you what, what, Asian? what, what their background is. Yeah. And I have a friend who was on a show where they would never tell him what his background was. He was just the Asian <laughs> because friend. Because they didn't know. They never thought about it. But Especially he would like Filipino, say, like he would say, can, what, what is his background? And they were, they just didn't give him anything. And I don't know, you can't play that. You have to know. So, so we just did a deep dive and Rene Goubet is on our staff as Filipino. So we had someone there. And if we, if on the, in the instances that we haven't, we brought somebody in, but like, you don't need to explain what Dinaguan is. You just need to show it. And the audience is going to understand, oh, that's a special food that pertains to his family. And she's going to learn how to do it. You don't really need to, 
everybody understands that there are certain types of food that, you know, so, so there is a, but it, it's very meaningful just to have any kind of specificity. And I will say what's changed over the 25 years of my career is like truly no one cared and I could not have made any characters Jewish. Andy Sachs in Devil Wears Prada is certainly Jewish. Sachs is my grandmother's name and Lauren Weisberger is Jewish. That's a story about a Jewish woman, right. but that's never mentioned, nor would that have ever been mentioned 12 years ago when the movie right. came out. And now we have, we're writing one of the most unabashedly Jewish fa- oh female God. leads and we're encouraged to do that. And I think that it is changing in a great way. Obviously, I think there's some negative, obviously negativity that has come with that, you know, raised awareness of people's, you know, non-white guyness, I guess. But it, it's, I, I, to me, it's, it ultimately redounds to the good because as a writer, you can be super specific. We have a rule in our writer's room, like if it hurts anybody's feelings or offends anyone, it goes out. Like what, We'll come up with another joke. Like, yeah, what, I don't so even understand what is hard about that. And in the beginning, hmm. there was uh, some of the writers hesitated to say to me, I don't like this joke. This hurts my feelings because they had been told in the past that they were being babies or overly uh, sensitive, overly sensitive, PC. that comedy mm-hmm. should be more important. It's like, no, what is why is it more important than someone's feelings? When we talk about our hyphen. So for me, I'm a Salvadoran Jewish Angelina woman. Like somehow I never get to wife, which is like funny when I see people's Twitter profile. Like and I'm like, wow, wife's right up there. That's but uh love you, Neil. <laughs> uh, but uh, you know, I think there's a, such as the 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 female experience in it too sure. is so specific. I mean, last week this friend of mine, I was talking about bacterial vaginosis, yes. just generally, right. no specifics. But then there's a whole episode yeah. about like <laughs> I mean, I keep laughing so hard about like someone. Are you frying tilapia in yeah, here? Yeah, yeah. Like the experience—it's so, it's gross. so gross and so no, real. No, it's not a river fish. <laughs> yeah, we we. I mean, we really have embraced that kind of like that's again that specificity because all women know we're like, oh, that's a weird itch or that's a weird discharge. We just don't want to talk about it. But we do know, like, I know a ton about jizz. Oh, just yeah. <laughs> just from like mainstream movies, not yeah. from porn, like just from Judd Apatow movies and Seth Rogen yeah. content. I know like a lot about and from growing up in the 80s with like a lot of gross out stuff. Like I know a lot about jizz, but no one was ever talking about the clitorises or yeast infections or any of that. And in college, I wrote <laughs> a guide. I wrote a guide. My roommate and I wrote, co-wrote a book called A Coed's Companion, and it was a guide to college for women. And we had a thing on UTIs and a thing on on yeast infections because in the time, you know, there was no, you couldn't Google it and no one was fucking talking about any of that stuff. And like, but even now we'll do something like, and we're very open. I'm so excited that generationally the expansion of like what we are willing to talk about and totally open to talk about with our friends and what you are doing is actually hugely publicly doing. Right. We've talked so much about your work, which we truly just adore. And I think, you know, something that when we think about being mashups, being immigrants, being children of immigrants, is that um, we're really proud of our own work ethic. Yeah. Like, and proud of being super achievement oriented to the point where like your dad was depressed that you are not (laughs) Suma. And like we also we know that that like the obsession with work is both generational and it's also very American to the point where like people are burning out. And we also know that it's the the 
um, weight on work is both like different and more for immigrants and kids of immigrants. And like we're all expected to be exceptional in order to be like valued here. And we know it's unhealthy. And yet like I can't help but be proud when I'm like, oh, we work so fucking hard and we did this thing and we made this thing. But also know it's like not healthy and sustainable. So I wonder for you, like as somebody who has worked so hard and and done so much and like achieved these really incredible things, do you think that your work ethic comes from your parents? Is it something that you hope to pass on to your kids, or do you hope maybe they have like a well? I have a different. I have a completely different way of parenting from my dad who was the sort of primary like uh, value setter which is you know he really had a lot of anxiety about making sure that we did well in school I mean he had a lot it was he was very anxious about making sure that we could succeed and the interesting thing is that my so I have a shirt that says I am an immigrant that I wear sometimes and I was wearing it my parents were over and my father was like why are you wearing that shirt and I was like because I'm an immigrant we're immigrants dad he's like nah I mean yeah maybe like, he doesn't – it's not a part of their identity. Mm. When I say to him, he was like, why Why would you work on a show that's about an Indian girl? What do you have in common with her? I'm like, we're immigrant families. He's like, uh, what? It's so interesting how, like, that yeah. is a part of my identity. Him, zero. Mm. Like, his experience is that. But my father is not – Well, he was my just parents, doing the thing. He was just doing the thing, man. He needed a job. He was living in this – he married a French girl, so they moved to France for a while. Then he got a job offered in America, and he moved to America. So, like, he – I think in his mind, immigrant is like, you're on a boat somehow. <laughs> you know, like, <laughs> he he has a – it's really funny – that the va- he wouldn't identify those values as that. He might identify them as Jewish. So so my approach to parenting though is very different, which is I just don't believe that you can browbeat anyone into being anything that they're not. And so I feel like, you know, I have one kid who does all his homework and one kid who didn't really do any homework until ninth grade and like they are who they are and all you can do is sort of say explain to them the consequences. Like if you're not going to do your homework, you might not get the grades that you want. If you don't get the grades you want, you might not be able – you'll just have fewer choices when it comes to college. But they're not my choices. They're your choices. You are just wrapping up at Crazy Ex-Girlfriend. Yeah. We're not going to talk about the antidepressant <laughs> section, but that's what we want to talk about because until we saw it, Amy and I both were like every day being like, why isn't this person on antidepressants? Right. Everybody. So <laughs> what's a story you're ready to tell now? I'd like to tell more stories for people my age. Because that's not something that I've been doing. And I think there's a lot of interesting specificity in how specifically women are treated at a certain age. Amy's obsessed with perimenopause. So we can talk about that also. But just in in general, the transition that you go through as a woman, for better and for worse, like, you know, I became the the boss of a TV show in my mid-40s. And I do think that I had had also been – had produced – a few pilots. One of them was the Margaret Cho thing, which was a planted spinoff. It's kind of a complicated thing. But I had also executive produced those in my 20s. And the way people treat you when you're in your 20s and the way people treat you when you're in your 40s, you get some bossness by being middle-aged, which is really kind of interesting. And you st- and you still have people say sexist things to you, but you less have people comment on like your butt. I'm nodding vigorously. <laughs> Thank you, thank you so, so much. much. Thank you, I mean, ladies. This is incredible. And also, thank you, Cher. 
Yeah, thank you. Share. Share. Thank you. Always. Should we go to the share music? Because there's there's also there's seventy share, but then also I would heavily investigate Silkwood share because the hair. Also, can we just go to Vegas together? Wait, but for today's share. Yes. How about share calling into C-SPAN and shit talking people? Oh, I know. And her her Twitter feed. I fucking yeah. She's the best. Everything. Okay. Well. All right. Cheers to share. Cheers to share. Share, she's the best. <laughs> but also, I actually really want to go to Vegas and see her show. So, can we do that, please? Yes, I'm in. Okay. Also, can we rewatch Mask and Cry? Yes, duh. Okay, thank you. <laughs> That's all for today. Next episode, we're sitting down with a death doula, a Lua Arthur. I want to do this work the best that I can. Mm. I also feel as though if I die as a result of a disease process, that my death is going to be a fantastical, fantastical. Like, I'm going to talk about it nonstop. I'm going to use my death to do that thing that I am doing with my life. Our producer is Kara Hart. The show is executive produced by me, Rebecca Lair, and Amy Choi, and the Mashup Americans Creative Studio. Shout out to Shelby Sandlin for handling all of the booking for this show. Our theme music is by DJ Rob Swift, with additional music by A Lot Moman. Find us on all the socials at Mashup American, and don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. Thank you. Bye. 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 